From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, going undercover to document the Taliban's crackdown on women. Over this past year, the Taliban have broken their promises to allow girls to continue their schooling and women to keep their jobs. Many girls and women are disappearing, arrested for violating the morality code, or abducted and forced to marry one of the Taliban. We'll talk with British-Iranian journalist Ramita Navai, who went undercover to speak to women who were victimized by the Taliban and women working underground to help women escape brutality. Her new PBS Frontline documentary is called Afghanistan Undercover. Also, we'll talk with Will Bunch, author of After the Ivory Tower Falls, about how college tuition became so expensive, driving students and parents into debt. And Justin Chang will review the new film, Ali and Ava. This month marks the one-year anniversary of the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan and the departure of U.S. troops. Over the course of the year, the Taliban have intensified their crackdown on women's rights to the point that women have been erased from public life. When out on the street, women are expected to be covered from head to toe with only an opening for their eyes. With a few exceptions, they're no longer allowed to work. Girls aren't allowed to go to school after sixth grade. Women and girls have been disappearing, imprisoned for breaking the Taliban's morality code, or forced into marrying one of the Taliban. In the new documentary, Afghanistan Undercover, my guest Ramita Navai, sometimes with the help of a hidden camera, manages to talk to women in jail, women hiding in safe houses, as well as women's rights lawyers and activists risking their lives to help other women and protest the Taliban. The film is now streaming on the PBS Frontline website and the PBS video app. Navai is a British-Iranian investigative journalist, documentary filmmaker, and author. She won an Emmy for her PBS Frontline documentary, Syria Undercover. She's been the reporter on documentaries about rape in India and UN peacekeepers accused of rape. She risked her life making a documentary on the civil war in Syria. Her first book was titled City of Lies, Love, Sex, Death, and the Search for Truth in Tehran. Ramita Navai, welcome to Fresh Air, and congratulations on the documentary. It seems like the promises that the Taliban made a year ago about how they treat women have been broken. What are the promises they made and broke? Well, it was interesting because actually it was their very first official press conference after they took power that they kind of made a song and dance about women's rights. They said they'd protect women's rights within the limits of Islamic law. They said that women would be allowed to work and study and the world was watching. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the very first press conference they mentioned women's rights because they knew that the world was watching, is watching, and that women's rights for the world is a litmus test of their governance and how they approach human rights. And of course, it didn't take very long for the world to realize that they weren't as reform-minded as they were making out. You know, you said the Taliban knew the world was watching. I feel like the world isn't watching as carefully anymore. And your documentary was a wake-up call to me that I haven't been paying attention to Afghanistan and things have gotten so dire for women there. Is that part of the reason why you made the documentary? Because so many of us have stopped paying as much attention as we had been paying and have moved on to other crises? 
You're absolutely right about everybody losing um, interest. So I first went to Afghanistan in November, December, um, after the takeover for 30 days. And I went back in March this year. And of course, what happened was the Ukraine war, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it was really interesting. We noticed an absolute shift because the world's eyes were not looking at Afghanistan. They were on Ukraine. Um, and the difference, speaking to officials, um, the, the difference in their behaviour, the speed at which they were enforcing more restrictive laws against women were all very visible. And actually, so many women we spoke to said exactly that to us, said nobody cares about Afghanistan anymore because of Ukraine. And we're really scared now more than we ever were because there are no checks and balances on these people. One of the things that you learned is that women and girls are disappearing. Sometimes it's to prison for alleged, you know, violations of the morality code. And sometimes it's to be forcibly married to a member of the Taliban. And you say that these forced abductions and marriages follow a pattern. What is the pattern? So, first of all, these forced marriages are very different to the cultural phenomenon that happens in Afghanistan of forced marriages. And that's where parents give their daughters uh, to families for marriage. Um, and that's a common practice. And they get a bride price and families are both work together in agreement together. And the daughter usually has no say in it. But now what's happening is that the Taliban are abducting women and girls and taking them without the family's consent, without a bride price. And what usually happens, the pattern that usually follows, is that um, a Taliban fighter or even a Taliban commander, because we uncovered evidence that this was happening at high levels within the Taliban, will see or hear of a woman they want to marry. I mean, a lot of times it's because there's a really pretty, attractive young woman or girl that they've heard about or they've seen at the market. And they approach the family and they try the official route first, they ask for the hand in marriage. When the family say no, that's when they abduct the girl. So they will turn up with reinforcements. Um, sometimes they turn up with a cleric in tow and get married, get the cleric to marry them on the spot. And often the girl is taken and the family don't have access to her. Often the family are beaten up in the process because, of course, male members of the family will protest. And I think, yeah, in every single case that I came across, family members were beaten when the girls were taken. You say that if an attractive woman is, you know, at the market or on the street and somebody who's into abducting somebody for marriage sees her, he might follow her home, etc. But now women have to be facially covered in the street. So that approach to abducting an attractive woman isn't going to work anymore. Well, even when I was there, most women wear the, you know, the COVID mask covering to cover their faces. Now that's been made mandatory. But even when I was there, women were pretty scared. You know, it was only kind of brave minority when you leave Kabul in the provinces that would leave the house without a face covering. In Kabul, it's a different kettle of fish. Um, and most women didn't wear the face covering in Kabul. Um, but uh, I was quite surprised, actually, in Faisabad, the capital of Badakhshan, 
Women there were dressed in a pretty daring way, and that really surprised me. And I spoke to some of those women, uh, took them aside and said, look, you're wearing really high heels. I can see your ankles. You're wearing loads of makeup. Your your hair's falling out your, your scarf. How, how do you dare? Are you not scared? And they said, yeah, we are scared, but this is our form of rebellion. And it really reminded me of Iran. You know, in Iran, when I was reporting there uh, 10, 15 years ago, you could get flogged for bad hijab. You could get flogged for wearing too much makeup. And yet everybody, all the girls would go out with their hair showing and their makeup showing. And it was kind of the youth's way of rebelling and the youth's one-fingered salute to a system, uh, an ideology they didn't agree with. And it was really funny talking to these young Afghan women and girls in this province in northern Afghanistan who were pushing out the boundaries, who were daring to leave the house uncovered, that reminded me of what was happening in Iran and the the youth in Iran. How did the Taliban pick women and girls now to force into marriage. The women and girls are covered facially, and the Taliban can't judge if they're, you know, attractive enough to meet the Taliban's high standards of who they're going to force to marry them. Well, word of mouth. So they have spies in all neighborhoods now. So people are scared of their neighbors because they're not sure who's giving information to the Taliban. So that's a not, that is a way that they, they try to single out uh, young, unmarried women and girls. And also what's been happening, and this is another pattern that we kept hearing again and again, is that Taliban commanders are allowing their fighters to take women and girls in the provinces in this way. And it's almost like a, a treat. It's almost like a thank you for all those years of fighting, of hard fighting in the mountains. So it's now almost like, enjoy the spoils of war. You have deserved this. And what we also found was that the government in Kabul issued edicts about these forced marriages, letting their men know in the provinces that they should not be doing this, that forced marriage is not allowed, whether it is parents forcing their daughters or whether it is Talibs taking women and girls. However, what we saw, and this was really interesting, was no matter all the edicts that Kabul will issue, no matter the instruction they will give to their commanders in the provinces, the commanders in the provinces will do as they please. And that showed you how fractured the Taliban is and how the chain of command has completely changed from 20 years ago, that actually Kabul cannot control its commanders in the provinces and they do as they please. One of the stories you follow is the story of a young woman You've named Maryam because you want to protect her real identity. You interviewed her mother after Maryam had gone missing, and she disappeared three weeks earlier. She just graduated before the Taliban takeover, and her dream was to become a filmmaker. Her mother finally found out that she was imprisoned and found out where she was, and you went to that prison. What access were you allowed in the prison? So we were told that we would be shown the men's wing, the men's section, um, but we couldn't talk to any of the prisoners. And we had to play it quite cool because we didn't want the prison chief to know how much we needed to get into the women's section, the women's wing. That's because we had been hearing these reports that lots of women had been going missing from the streets of Herat. 
They weren't seen again. Their families were beside themselves. And they were slowly finding out that these women were being imprisoned. So we needed to get that evidence and get into the women's ring. But we had to play it pretty cool. So at first, when we applied for permission to to, to have a tour of the prison, um, we did it via a contact of ours. And this contact of ours persuaded the prison chief to let us in because he said it would be uh, good for the Western world to know that the Taliban were treating their prisoners well. And, of course, aid was cut. So the prison chief was in desperate need of money because funding to his prison, a lot of funding to his prison had been cut. So it was his chance to kind of show off his prison to the West in the hope of getting some aid money. When we were in the men's section... We played it pretty cool, and while we were there, that's when our team started trying to persuade the prison chief to let us into the women's section. And ultimately he did. Uh, His own men actually were telling him that uh, he should because they were worried that if he didn't, we would get suspicious. My guest is Ramita Novai. Her new documentary, Afghanistan Undercover, is streaming on the PBS Frontline website and the PBS video app. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. And film critic Justin Chang will review the British romantic drama Ali and Ava about an interracial relationship between two middle-aged North Englanders. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with Ramita Navai. In her new documentary, Afghanistan Undercover, she reports on the Taliban's total crackdown on women's rights in Afghanistan. So you got into the women's prison and you were able to document what you saw because you had a hidden camera. Can I start by asking you, where was the hidden camera? How did you do that? Or would you rather not say? I'd rather not. <laughs> I'd rather not say. Save it for, for next time um, you have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather not say. But uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was slightly uncomfortable because we were surrounded by over half a dozen armed talibs. And I actually had to kind of set things up um, in the middle of these half a dozen armed talibs. And that, Terry, is, is when being a woman can be a brilliant thing in a patriarchal society with men like the Taliban because I was totally overlooked. They thought, who is this woman? They just didn't address me. They didn't look at me. Um, underestimated, overlooked bingo, I'm in the money. So I can do my stuff, set up what I needed to set up, even though I was surrounded by about 15 armed talibs. So you were invisible and that was helpful? Yes. It's not often I get excited about being invisible as a woman and overlooked and (laughs) underestimated. That was one of them. So what did you find in the women's side of the prison? So there were about 40 women um, in the prison courtyard. We know that there were many more in the cells. And, of course, I disobeyed the Taliban prison chief and I scooted over immediately to try and talk to the women. Um, And they talked to me for as long as they could before they were told to stop, before prison guards were sent over, before the prison chief got annoyed with me. Um, And they told me that they were all in there for moral crimes, for so-called moral crimes, and they'd all been in prison since the Taliban took over. Um, Of course, when the Taliban took over, by the way, they emptied all of the prisons uh, across the country. Um, So all of these women have been in prison since the takeover. 
Um, and the other thing we found out, and we found out this through the women and through their families, was that their cases had not been officially recorded. So they had just been sucked into this black hole because there was no official record of them. They'd just gone missing. Slowly their families had found out where they were and their families had started to all try negotiating release. But of course, there was just absolutely no record because the Taliban were trying to keep these female imprisonments secret from the world, and they still are. You saw Maryam there. You recognized her and tried to speak with her. What happened? I mean, it was extraordinary. So we'd heard about these cases, tracked this one mother down, as you said. Her daughter, Mariam, had gone missing. They found out that she was in prison. They showed me a photo of her. Now, in the prison, there were, yeah, there were, there were over 100 women in that prison, but not all of them were in the courtyard. I wasn't expecting to see her. I wasn't expecting to recognize her. And then all of a sudden, there she was, staring straight at me. And that's because she really wanted to talk and she had a message for the world. And she, later we talked and she said she was just standing there praying that I would come and talk to her. And it was only at the end, I'd already, I'd already gone and spoken to a whole load of women, been told off, been told to stop. The prison chief was getting angry and agitated. I was pulled away and then I saw Mariam and I went back and I really didn't have long. And in fact... A prison guard came over straight away. She started speaking to me in English uh, so nobody would understand what she was saying. And as soon as the prison guard came over, the prison guard demanded she start speaking in Persian, in Dari, which she did do, and she started praising uh, the Taliban and the government. But we had what we needed. What did she tell you in English? She said, let the world know what's happening here, that they're beating us. And of course, when she was released... I spoke to her and I spoke to four of her friends. I spoke to another former inmate who'd also been released. I spoke to her on the telephone and they all said the same story. They were arrested by intelligence officers from the streets of Herat. They were electrocuted in prison. With tasers? Yeah, they were tasered, yeah. All the women were tasered. In prison, they were beaten. They were regularly beaten. They were absolutely terrified. Um, the women and girls in prison were offered freedom in return for marrying Talibs. So they were offered a way out. Uh, they know of four young women who they say were forced into doing that. Um, they were hopeless. Their families didn't know where they were. They'd gone missing. They had no one. And they were just taken and it was a pretty grim picture. And all of this information was corroborated. Before we went to the prison, actually, we spoke to four female lawyers, so three lawyers and a prosecutor, who risked their lives by talking to us. Um, and they were no longer allowed to work, so they're no longer allowed to go into the office. Women are not allowed to... Most, nearly all women in Afghanistan now are not allowed to work. There are a few exceptions. But they were still in touch with their male colleagues who were feeding them information, and they still had access to records. And they are the ones that told us that these imprisonments were not being officially recorded, that there was no judicial process, that these women were just being snatched from the streets and being lost in this prison system. And these lawyers corroborated all of that information for us. 
Maryam's family managed to negotiate her release. I don't know how. So she was released. But then after going back to her family's home in one of the provinces, she fled to Kabul, stayed in a safe house, and then managed to escape Afghanistan and go to Iran. When you were in Kabul, you found a network of young women running secret safe houses, helping other women escape the Taliban. And the women who you met were risking their lives to do this work. What were they able to do for women? So they'd get phone calls from desperate women and families around the country. Um, So it was an underground railway network almost. Um, And they needed shelter. So often families needed to flee. The Taliban were hunting for them. And what was interesting was that these young women who were running this network of secret safe houses, they were also all on the run from the Taliban. So they were working under the radar and undercover all the time, putting their own lives at risk to help families escaping the Taliban. You've witnessed the erasure of women in different countries and reported on sexual abuse and rape. And I'm wondering, like, you're so smart and educated and worldly and such a good journalist. When you, for instance, watch the Taliban as they think that they're so much smarter and wiser than you are and you are invisible and worthy of being ignored, what goes through your mind? Well, you're talking about my mind that is housed to a brain that is much smaller than a man's brain, Terry. <laughs> so, yeah, they made me very aware of that, that my our brains are much, much smaller, Terry. Did they tell you that? Um, yes, but they, that, that's, that's, that's common knowledge. I mean, that's, they believe that quite openly. Of course, not, the kind of, not your sophisticated talibs that maybe are Western-educated and speak lots of languages in Kabul. They know not to say that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, lots of Talibs say that. But gosh, what goes through my mind? I tell you what goes through my mind, that this is what happens in deeply patriarchal societies. And I've seen this in deeply patriarchal societies around the world. And when you have entrenched patriarchy, you have misogyny and you have high rates of violence and sexual violence against women. And you have absolute hypocrisy. And where there are no women's rights, there are no human rights. Women's rights are human rights. And I get really frustrated, you know, when you talk about women's rights and and men often in positions of power um, will dismiss women's rights and, oh, there are more important things to be worrying about. You know, you've got internal politics and you're worried about women's rights. We saw this happen in Iran when the revolution happened and hundreds of thousands of women took to the streets against the hijab. They were told, even by liberals and the left wing and the, uh, and the secular, get back in your box, shut up. There's a big revolution going on here, ladies. Now is not the time to go on about the hijab and women's rights. And that's absolutely wrong because women's rights is a litmus test for human rights, is a litmus test of good governance, of how a society is is safe and runs itself. And that's what I find deeply depressing is that we're told that it's not interesting, that it's not important and it's vital. Ramita Navai, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you for your courage in reporting. 
Well, you're very kind, Terry. Thank you so much. I love talking to you. Thank you. Ramira Novai's new documentary is called Afghanistan Undercover. It's now streaming on the PBS Frontline website and the PBS video app. Our film critic Justin Chang recommends the British romantic drama Ali and Ava, a story about an interracial relationship between two middle-aged North Englanders. It was nominated for two British Academy Film Awards earlier this year, is now playing in theaters, and will be available August 23rd on Amazon Prime Video and Apple TV. Here's Justin's review. Ali and Ava is a lovely, charming surprise. It's the latest drama written and directed by Clio Barnard, who's received much international acclaim for her powerful, often shatteringly bleak films set in Yorkshire in northern England. These earlier works, they include The Arbor, a boldly experimental portrait of the late playwright Andrea Dunbar, and The Selfish Giant, a tale of childhood friendship, are all tragedies of a kind, marked by poverty, bigotry, addiction, and abuse. Some of those elements appear in Ali and Ava, which takes place in Bradford, a city in West Yorkshire, and follows two people who've seen their share of hardships. Ali, played by Adil Akhtar, is a Pakistani immigrant who experiences plenty of day-to-day racism, often from white children who like to throw rocks at his car. Ava, played by Claire Rushbrook, is an Irish-born woman with four children and several grandchildren, plus a history of physical and emotional abuse by her recently deceased husband. But despite all this, the vibe of the movie is sunny and upbeat. And I do mean upbeat. The first time we meet Ali, he's standing on top of his car, dancing and listening to high-energy music on his headphones. Music is a huge part of his life. He's a DJ in his spare time, though he earns his living as a landlord. He's beloved by his tenants, many of whom are also immigrants, and treat him like family. Each day, he drives one tenant's young daughter, Sophia, to school, which is how he crosses paths with Ava, who works as an assistant in Sophia's classroom. Their first meeting, it's a rainy day, and Ali offers Ava a ride home, isn't exactly love at first sight. But they're both so warm, friendly, and open to new experiences that it's no surprise when romantic sparks eventually start to fly. Soon they're visiting each other's homes, and listening to each other's music. Ava loves folk and country, but Ali tries to turn her on to rap and electronica. In this amusing scene, Ali knocks on Ava's door one evening. She refuses to let him in at first, as she's just gotten out of a bath. And so Ali talks to her while peeking through the mail slot. Do you know what, that's it. That's it, now I'm going. I've I've had enough. Right. Bye, goodbye. Bye. That's it. See ya. I can, I can still see you. Where? There. Where? Don't jab at me. Oh, bloody hell. I see what you mean. You do look a mess, don't you? <sighs> Just go out bath. Oh, is it still on? Well, no, you're not getting him a bath. No, of course not. No. <laughs> there are complications. Ali is married, though he and his wife are about to separate. She's looking to move out soon, but Ali still holds out hope for a reconciliation. He's also embarrassed about breaking the news to his tradition-minded relatives, 
who live close by. Ava is constantly surrounded by her family as well. Her children are always dropping in on her, usually so she can babysit her grandkids. Despite their obvious cultural differences, both Ollie and Ava are the emotional glue holding their families together. Still, those differences do have a way of flaring into the open, mainly when Ava's racist son, Callum, played by Sean Thomas, catches the two of them hanging out and listening to music, and chases Ollie away with a sword. There's a lot of small-minded prejudice for Ollie and Ava to deal with. Both have busy, messy lives, something Barnard suggests with restless handheld camera work and convulsive editing. What makes the movie so affecting is the sense that, despite all this imperfection, Ollie and Ava have somehow found each other at an improbably perfect moment. The two leads are superb. Akhtar plays Ali like something of an overgrown child. He's a lot to take, but he has an irresistibly shaggy charm. And Rushbrook is simply stellar. As the selfless, good-natured Ava, she often flashes a smile you could warm your hands over, though she also shows you the piercing loneliness behind that smile. While there are tender scenes of connection in Ali and Ava, especially when the two enjoy a quick getaway by train, there are few grandly romantic speeches or gestures. Barnard maintains her tough, realistic approach even as she guides this love story to its hopeful conclusion. Movies so rarely show us something as wonderfully, believably ordinary as Ollie and Ava's love, which is precisely why it feels so extraordinary. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed the new film Ollie and Ava, which is now playing in theaters. Coming up, Will Bunch talks about how tuition at so many colleges has become unaffordable, leaving students and parents in debt. He's written a new book called After the Ivory Tower Falls. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. How did college go from being the doorway to the American dream to a path that leads to starting adult life deep in debt, unsure of whether the degree will help you get a job that even pays enough to pay off that debt? How did we go from the 1944 GI Bill, which offered World War II veterans, or at least white ones, easy access to college, to now the stress of today of trying to get into the right college? And how did colleges and universities become a target of the right? My guest Will Bunch addresses these and other related questions in his new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. Bunch is a national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, focusing on social injustice, income inequality, politics, and government. The roots of his new book go back about 15 years, when he was a reporter at the Philadelphia Daily News, and his two children were in grade and middle school. As he struggled to make ends meet, he wondered how he'd ever be able to afford sending his children to a good college, especially during the two years when they'd both be in college. Will Bunch, welcome back to Fresh Air, and congratulations on your book. Thanks so much, Terry. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So your grandmother started a small college that was a secretarial college and then a business school. Your father, you know, your grandmother's son, went to college. You went to college. Um, What did it mean to you? What did college mean to you? In the 20th century, college really became the American dream. It certainly was true in my family. There was just this innate sense that the path of life 
was to do better than the generation uh, that came before you, right? So my grandmother, I think, who always regretted never having the opportunity to go to college herself, even as she was, you know, recruiting kids and building this college in Peoria, uh, you know, really pushed her kids to go to college. My my dad got a, a full scholarship to go to uh, Trinity College in Connecticut, so he took a big leap up the ladder. And when I was growing up, I wanted to not just go to college, but I wanted to go to the best college possible. So uh, I was really focused on trying to get into an Ivy League school. I did actually end up going going to Brown University. And I kind of assumed the same path for my kids. And my, my kids, uh, I have two children. They're both very bright. But by the time they came of age in the uh, 2010s, really the whole college environment had changed. This idea of going up another step up the ladder, it, for so many families, for so many middle-class families like mine, I think the idea is more clinging to the ladder, you know, and not falling backwards, you know, as college gets more expensive and more competitive. Let's talk about tuition, because that is such a big concern mm-hmm. for all students and parents now. Um, what started the trend of skyrocketing tuition? Several things happened at once. You know, I, I do feel part of it was the political backlash that taxpayers were no longer interested in, in giving a blank check to public universities. And you, you've seen, you know, in, in my home state of Pennsylvania, in the late 20th century, taxpayers paid 75% of the cost of public universities. Today, that number is only 25%. And the difference is made up in, in tuition that, 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 you know, students and their families have to pay it. And in most cases, they have to borrow money to make it happen. Um, This wasn't the only thing that was happening, though. Uh, Obviously, uh, the economy began to change dramatically in the 1970s. Um, uh, You know, you had that period of stagflation and and slowing job growth. And uh, uh, so this was also a reason for decreased government support. Um, Interestingly, you know, colleges were starting to panic in the late 70s because also the baby boom was winding down and they were worried about how, how were they going to attract students. And, uh, you know, Harvard is such a pace setter for so many things in, in the higher education field. And uh, Harvard in 1978 um, decided they would do a large tuition increase for that time of $850 a year, which I think was about 17%. And, um, uh, and they said... Well, we know that people who certain people who are wealthy who want the prestige of a Harvard education will pay this. Some of the extra money will plow back into discounts for some of the middle class students who go here. And so they created this model. It's called the high tuition, high aid model. And it worked. You know, people, you know, applications didn't drop at all. So every year for the next decade, they raised tuition $850 every year. And this and this really started the cycle that we have, have known for the last 40 years of tuition going up every year. And what colleges learned is that uh, f- families looking on where to send their kids to college weren't shopping for the best price. They were shopping for prestige. You refer to the high tuition, high aid model. Where does the aid come in? Like, so it's tuitions have been rising. Where does the aid of the high tuition, high aid model come in? Well, Ivy League schools, you know, like Harvard, um, 
are able to do a little bit more with financial aid than than some of their competitors. Because, you know, uh, these schools ha- have billion dollar endowments, and some of those endowments can be funneled into financial aid, um, uh, so they can give discounts to middle class students, and then for lower income students, uh, you know, they have these so-called need-blind admission policies. Now, there's a lot of debate over whether they really meet all the need or not. But, you know, they clearly are able to do some things in the financial aid sector that public universities or, you know, other kind of mid-level universities that are trying to keep up with the Ivy League schools of the world um, can't offer the same benefits, you know, the you know they're trying to compete. They're trying to keep up in competing for the top students, but they aren't necessarily able to compete in the in the area of giving financial aid to the lower income students. Well, I want to ask you about some of the plans that have been offered um, politically. Like Senator Bernie Sanders has, you know, proposed forgiving student debt, which is a very controversial. Um, stand to take, what makes it so controversial? Like, what, what would it mean? 45 million people have some college debt, and, and many of those 45 million have more than 10,000. Some of them have 50,000, 100,000, 150,000. Um, but you're talking about a minority of people. You know, only 37% of Americans have, have a bachelor's degree. And two things. First of all, not all of those people borrowed to get through college. You know, some people their families or, or, or they worked their way through college and, and they, they came out without debt. And I think more importantly, you know, the 63 percent who don't have bachelor's degrees feel that why is paying off the debts incurred by these kids their responsibility? Um, their responsibility in terms of paying taxes to cover the debt? Right. That the gov- you know, I mean, it's a very abstract thing. I mean, basically, the government <laughs> isn't, isn't getting the loan repayments, uh, and so that's hurting the federal budget. So eventually that would come back and hurt, hurt the average taxpayer. You know, in the, in the book, I, I come out in support of uh, massive debt forgiveness. Uh, you know, I think too many people from the last couple of generations were sold a, a bill of goods, weren't told either what college was going to cost or were misled on, on – what kind of jobs and what kind of careers would emerge for them on the other side to pay them back. A major component of this crisis is these for-profit universities, which used very dubious methods to max out the amount of money that they could loan to each student, knowing that the government guaranteed the money and and saddling these kids with debt for, in many cases, for degrees that uh, aren't, aren't really worth a lot in the job market, unfortunately. Tuitions are so high in some schools. It just seems like how can anybody afford to pay like $70,000 a year for tuition and then do that for four years? Um, you can explain how college tuition it, you know, got more expensive, but it's really so expensive. Like how did it get that high? I, the lo- and not, I mean not every yeah. college costs that much, but, but a lot too. Um, in the book, uh, I, I devote a whole chapter to looking at the situation at one uh, one college, which is Kenyon College in Ohio. And uh, uh, I picked Kenyon partly for the political environment because it's a it's a very liberal college in the heart of Trump country. But uh, the economics of Kenyon also fascinated me. Um, uh, their student body, I, about twenty percent of the students who go to Kenyon are from the top one percent of earners. And, uh, you know, a majority of the students are from the top 20 percent of earners. Um, So 
there is <laughs> there is enough high end demand to, to to keep this system going. And and you know, um, like I said, high tuition does fund discounts for for students who are truly in the you know what I might call the upper lower middle class, you know, families making $100,000 a year. They, they're probably not paying $75,000 a year to go to college, but, you know, they're, they're, they're paying maybe thirty dollars or $40,000 a year because of these discounts. And the system has worked, you know, barely, uh, uh, although, although in the last, last couple of years we've seen more and more middle class folks Questioning if college is really worth it at these prices, you know, the we finally reached the stage where people are starting to, to think about price more than prestige. So, for students who are in over their heads financially in order to go to college and are accruing a lot of debt, what happens in the other parts of their life during college years in terms of being able to afford rent or food? Yeah, I think I think one of the major things about college today in the 2020s that the, the average person who's not in touch with college life doesn't understand is just just the high level of problems like food insecurity on campus. You know, so many so many working class families, their kids are, you know, going to these public universities trying to stay stay on the ladder, stay stay in the middle class. And uh, they're really struggling to make ends meet. And, you know, most major universities nowadays have these large food pantries where students come every week to pick up macaroni and cheese or popcorn or just uh, food to sustain themselves during the week. Um, uh, In in 2021, and obviously you had the pandemic going on, but there was a major study of 190,000 college students and more than a third of them we're dealing with food insecurity or, or hunger issues. And uh, um, uh, rent is a big problem uh, uh, in, in places like California where the housing costs are so high. You have hundreds of college students who, who are living in their cars while attending classes. And, um, you know, it to me, it just kind of shows what kind of a, a Hunger Games type situation college has become for so many type people of, of – doing what they can to make sure they get that piece of paper that will keep them in the middle class. You say that Republicans are waging a war on higher education. Um, And you offer examples from a couple of states, Wisconsin and North Carolina. Give us an example of what you mean. Well, Wisconsin is a perfect example, um, particularly during the uh, tenure of Scott Walker as governor from, from 2010 to 2018. Some some of it was just cutting funding for education. Um, uh, he certainly tried to reduce tenure protections for professors because he saw professors as promoting a, a liberal ideology. But to me, the most interesting thing was this idea of what is college really for. And on the right, there's this push that college should be for workforce development and nothing else. Uh, you know, the flip side of this whole idea of liberal education and critical thinking. And um, in the middle of his tenure as governor, there was a huge controversy because um, he actually pushed to change the language of the University of Wisconsin's mission statement um, uh, to, to take out the idea that the goal of the university is the search for truth. He he wanted that language removed. <laughs> he wanted he wanted uh, it changed. To th- the purpose of the university is to develop the state's workforce. Period. And um, you know, 
I don't think people were ready for that. There was a huge outcry, and, and he actually he actually backed down from that. But uh, um, but what you have seen in states like Wisconsin and, and North Carolina uh, and several other red states uh, is more and more politically connected people being appointed to the board of university trustees, trying to exert more control over what goes on on campus, you know, over hiring. You know, in, in North Carolina, you had this huge controversy uh, over the uh, hiring of Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author of the 1619 Project, uh, as a journalism professor there. Um, she ended up not coming because of this back and forth over whether they were going to offer her tenure. And again, that was the conservative elements on the board of trustees. Um, you know, now in Florida, you know, Ron DeSantis uh, has done the same thing. You know, he has a very conservative board of trustees overseeing the public universities in Florida. They're making changes to tenure. They are um, changing the way the colleges are accredited to make it more difficult for these universities. And it, it just reflects an overall hostility uh, on the right to learning and education. We both live in Pennsylvania, and Doug Mastriano, who's a Christian nationalist and, and very right-wing, he supports the lie that Trump actually won the election. Um, does he have plans to change college and universities if he's elected as governor? Well, he's very fo- he's very focused. I mean, he wants to radically change K through twelve education, but uh, I, I think cuts in college funding by the state would almost certainly come with that. You know, Mastriano and other Republicans this year tried to uh, drastically cut state support for. Um, universities like Temple and the University of Pittsburgh that get state aid. And the reason for this uh, was largely a controversy at Pittsburgh over stem cell research that it does. So, you know, you you saw this bleeding of the uh, growing issue over reproductive rights and abortion um, intersecting with with the whole issue of college funding. And, um, you know, it it just kind of shows where the uh, far-right movement in this country is headed. Yeah, you mentioned that Mastriano uh, has plans for K through 12, and you wrote a column about that recently in which you wrote that, you know, he'd like to cut state aid to public schools by more than half with parents able to use those dollars for religious schools or homeschooling. Can you expand on what's behind that? I think the big reason the right is so obsessed about education comes out of the George Floyd protests from the spring of 2020. Uh, I think the size of those protests, the fact that in a lot of kind of small and mid-sized towns and cities in areas that you might normally call Trump country, you had big turnout suddenly for Black Lives Matter marches. And these marches were populated largely by high school students or, or, or high school teachers, right? They, they were a core of this movement. And I think, I think it made people on the right wonder, what, what is it that our kids are being taught in school that they're embracing this different philosophy about race and this different philosophy about uh, hierarchies in America that, that wasn't the one that I grew up with? And so, you know, so you've seen this intense focus on what are kids learning about race? What are kids learning about gender? What are they learning about uh, the LGBTQ community? And, uh, um, you know, it's interesting because I I think it's an evolution. You know, in the 1960s and 70s, conservatives were worried about what kids were doing on college campuses. And now they're starting to think that we need to nip 
some of these critical thinking ideas in the bud when these kids are in grade school. And I, you know, that's become, that's become the next battleground. Well, Will Bunch, I want to thank you a lot for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me, Terry. I really appreciate it. Will Bunch is a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and author of the new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. Fresh Air Weekend was produced this week by Thea Chaloner and Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Bodonato, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.